Hi, everybody. It's Precious Pioneer, and thank you for tuning in to another episode of Precious the Foodie. Um, I think that everyone has such a unique story to share, whether that be good or bad. They may play a big role into who we are today, but they don't have to define us, and we can opt to change and to grow and to be whoever it is that we want to be. Because only when we love ourselves will we have enough love to give to others, making the world overall such a better place. So yeah, let's jump in. Hi, welcome to Precious the Foodie Podcast, the show that will uncover stories through palettes and memories. My name is Precious Pioneer, your host. I'm a chef, a creative, and a foodie. I'm meeting people all over the world using food as a medium to highlight truths into bite-sized pieces. So I'm Jen Kennedy. I'm non-binary and queer and I use they, them pronouns. I'm a transformational coach uh, working with people around social change and activism and self-empowerment. And also I'm a podcaster for the podcast Queers & Co. And that's also a community and Facebook group. (laughs) No, that's so cool. I wanted, I'm sorry, where, where are you located again? Oh, so I live in the UK, just outside Cambridge. Okay, awesome. Mm. How is it over there related to quarantine and everything going on? Are you doing okay? I'm doing good, yeah. We've just gone into another lockdown. Uh, Last week it started again, so a month. But yeah, luckily, because most of my work is from home anyway, things haven't really changed that much for me. Um, Mm -hmm. I recognise that's a really privileged position to be in, though, because obviously lots of people aren't able to go out to work right now. But yeah, it's, it's okay here at the moment. That's awesome. I wanted to ask you a little bit more about what you do. Um, I know that you're an activist for social justice and um, you believe in radical self-love and you want to give people the confidence to change the world. I wanted to know how you stumbled upon that. Um, Did you just wake up wanting to do uh, that sort of selfless sort of work or is it something that you kind of evolved into? And what was that journey like? Yeah, I think it's definitely something that I evolved into. When I was younger, uh, so as a child, I kind of was always interested in uh, social change and I would always have very strong opinions about things. And then somewhere along the way, I think becoming a teenager, I kind of lost that part of me. uh, And that was tied up with uh, some trauma and also an eating disorder, which meant that I kind of lost myself, I'd say, and ended up sort of doing what other people thought would be a good idea for me or what I thought might make other people happy. And I really carried on doing that for quite a long time until I'd say uh, I had my daughter when I was 25 and was still, you know, heavily in disordered eating and diet culture and it wasn't Mm -hmm. until a few years later when I actually had a coaching session and I'd been through lots of other coaching things and you know found it really helpful but I thought there's this one area that no one can possibly help me with um and that was around my eating disorder and my relationship with my body but I brought it up in the Mm -hmm. session and actually it was really life-changing just as silly as it sounds actually just kind of saying out loud and having someone else acknowledge that that was a thing and that other people experienced that too really set me off on this kind of journey of and I'm sorry I really dislike the word journey but I just used Mm -hmm. it it set me off on this kind of discovery of finding out about body positivity and then that becoming more radical in terms of like fat activism and body liberation and then really realizing that 
diet culture and my eating disorder had held me back from doing the things that I actually really wanted to do but didn't have the confidence to do and so then I just yeah became I guess more more activated and maybe returned to the the person that I was on track to be when I was a child before I was disrailed or derailed by uh, diet culture and some trauma. Right of course okay I have quite a few questions for you related to that how come you dislike the word journey? Oh good question I just think it's very very overused and sounds a little bit cliche so I try Mm. to come up with other words for other synonyms but I don't always find the best one so I notice it slips out sometimes yeah I I I haven't quite found one that fits better but I think sometimes Mm. it's it's just a little bit overused (laughs) oh I could I could see that um I I don't know I kind of have evolved to embrace cliches a little bit more because I Mm. feel like there's always a little bit of truth to them and so even though and sometimes it's not what you want to hear cliches and they are overused but I think the fact that they have kind of a negative connotation I think that reclaiming them this is just me personally but I think reclaiming them and using them in an impactful way that actually has some substance can really sit with people because everybody remembers cliches but if you can kind of change them to to be able to use them into your own use and mm-hmm. relate them to your own life. I mean, I think they're cliches for a reason. They're actually true and they're kind of impactful. So I don't know. I, I, I try to reclaim it, I guess. Yeah, I really love that. I haven't thought about it that way before. Maybe I should like proudly use the word journey, proudly and unapologetically. <laughs> and I'm going to give it a go. <laughs> um, also, you mentioned that when you were a kid, people set you to do things that really weren't aligned with your own personality. And I Mm -hmm. wanted to ask you what kind of, because it was a little bit vague and I wanted to know what exactly you saw, because the way that we see ourselves versus how we're actually perceived can be two completely different things. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to ask you what was your perspective and what you thought your childhood was? And then what was that change that you recognized within yourself as you went through diet culture? And then can you be more specific related to diet culture and how you transitioned as a person from that point? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I guess it's important to mention that I grew up in a household where there was quite a lot, well, there were a lot of toxic things going on. And I have a narcissistic parent who um, was very manipulative around the things that they thought I should do in my life and Mm -hmm. what would be considered acceptable and, you know, what would please them. And so I found myself uh, from a very young age, actually being very clear about uh, what careers would be pleasing and what wouldn't and actually it became apparent to me that the careers that really aligned with my values were not not careers at all that would Mm -hmm. that would be considered acceptable and so I had uh, on the one hand a parent who was very supportive and wanted me to do whatever I wanted to do whatever would make me happy and then another parent who was very concerned with what the outside world might think about what I did Um, Mm -hmm. And I don't think it was even, it didn't feel particularly overt. Uh, at the time but now I look back and I can see that it was very very clear what was going on and that my sense of achievement became very tied up in how my body looked and what other people said about it so I noticed that I would get a lot of praise for example when I had been dieting and was very deep in my eating disorder that's when Mm -hmm. family members would congratulate me on how great I was looking and how successful I was going to be and then there'd be other times where I had put weight on and was not feeling great about my body and would be very much like ignored and people just wouldn't say anything and almost that absence of any kind of recognition uh, spoke Mm -hmm. volumes really and then thinking about yeah thinking about that 
how that impacted. I mean, on very physical levels, I was really into dance and performing and Mm -hmm. was sort of doing it every weekend, was really involved with going to drama school. And when I realised that other bodies around me were considered more acceptable than mine and that I would always be given the parts that were, say, an old lady or the funny friend or whatever it might be, um, Mm -hmm. it very quickly became clear that actually the the way that I wanted to perform or the the things that I thought were enjoyable were actually not what other people would want to see. Like my body wasn't considered acceptable within those yeah. spaces. Um, mm-hmm. And then I'm sorry, you'll have to remind me of the, the final question. No, it's okay. Um, About, okay, so I guess you kind of answered part of it. I wanted to know like how, you, I think you explained that pretty well because the thing is though, like you grew up in a certain way and you uh, wanted to be a dancer and you wanted to um, have a certain occupation that simply wasn't acceptable in the way that you were perceived. It sounds quite manipulative. Like you said, it's like grooming, you know, uh, excessive praise for one result mm-hmm. and um, blatant disregard for another. It's quite sad because it's almost a double-edged sword. You know, it it feeds into itself like at moments where you had gained weight based on that sort of reaction. You knew that it was sort of like disregard um, and you didn't feel the best within yourself and then for that to be piled on you know I think it should be almost reversal you know like when you don't feel well you should get some empathy or some sort of like comforting because I don't know it's it's your body you know so you should you should feel exhilarated despite the outcome you know Mm -hmm. or whatever outcome they anticipated or wanted for you yeah absolutely and I think having my own children I really noticed how how different that is like we don't ever comment on bodies um mm-hmm. apart from to say you know what great things they can do or how you know how brilliant that that running was or you know how mm-hmm. how good did it feel for you to experience that in your body whereas it was very much for me growing up and I think for lots of people it was very uh, focused on how I looked like I would be sort of criticized if I didn't wear high heels because I was considered to be too short or mm-hmm. I should always wear makeup in the mornings before if I was dating like before a partner woke up so that I was looking my best those kinds mm-hmm. of things that were just so ingrained and so focused on on my appearance and I think then it just became almost impossible to escape uh, that I anything I went into any job any possible endeavor was just seen through the lens of of my appearance Mm-hmm. It's so interesting. And so what was that journey like in related to your dance career? You know, so how did that end up going? Because you got all these really bummy sort of roles, you know, you didn't get any of the roles that where you could be the star and you could be highlighted, you know, because I know what roles you're talking about. It's the ones that are like two rows in the back off to the side, you know, or like <laughs> a side character, you know what I mean? Like a side character that, you know, it's just there. And so I wanted to know how that impacted your mindset and how you could achieve certain things in the world. And then Mm. also, like, did you transition out of it because of that? Yeah, I think in school, I got kind of leading roles, which was really great. But then it was when I went into um, drama school, so outside of school stuff, that then I noticed that, yeah, it was very much like, oh, we'll just hide you over there because, you know, you're much fatter than everyone else. And yeah, I guess it, it probably, it held me back in that area, like, I think when I was about 14, I just gave up performing. No, I think 15, I just gave up performing altogether. I didn't do it for a really, well, haven't done it since in the same kind of way. And I think it made me feel really aware of my physicality and wherever I showed up 
that people were judging me about, judging me based on my body. So even in job interviews or um, going to university, I just always felt really conscious that it wasn't, I wasn't being judged on, you know, how academic I was or, and not necessarily that someone should be judged on that either. But I'm just thinking about like in a class setting, I always felt like people were watching my appearance. And I think that Mm -hmm. is part of the eating disorder and also part of this sort of constant conditioning to be thinking about appearance. Um, right. Yeah. It's as I'm saying it to you, I'm noticing that um I haven't quite talked about it in this way before, and that feels really interesting to me. Mm, Just that's sort of good. yeah, I guess bringing all of the different the different things together. But it's definitely been an integral part, I'd say, of of the work that I have ended up doing because I think there also wasn't space to explore my queerness within that or my being non-binary. And so actually when you're so preoccupied with making yourself thinner, with slimming your body, um, there isn't much space to explore the other parts of your identity or to feel empowered enough to do the things you want to do in life in general. Uh, And I don't think that's really a mistake, unfortunately, with diet culture. Exactly. It's all consuming. Mm -hmm. And it's, I love having these sort of conversations because I'm very curious to understand the mindset of where you have to be and uh, how you get to this place. Because it's like, when I think of my childhood, it's completely different. You know, I think of friends or certain softball games I went to certain like I have memories to draw back to and I'm sure you do as well. But sometimes when you're you diet or you focus on the way that you look at such a young age, it's like all consuming because you're so focused on how you're being perceived that you don't have the the moment to see yourself you know see like what you who you aspire to be like where am I now and who do I want to be um, other than my physical appearance you know because that's going to change naturally from youth to adulthood and so forth Mm -hmm. and so I just think that's completely interesting how you made that transition and so you mentioned that you're non-binary and to be frank I'm quite ignorant to certain aspects of queer culture and I'm learning um, but I still don't know a whole lot and so I wanted to ask you a little bit of for a little bit of clarity because I think that a lot of other people may have similar questions and there's a lot of information and so I think just speaking to you you could give a really personal insight of what that means and um, and your pronouns. You said that they were they and them. I wanted to ask you how you discovered your queerness, I guess, to explain it a little bit more. I don't know if that's um, vague, but I don't know if you know what I mean. Yeah, I do. Absolutely. Okay. Um, awesome. So I'll start with being non-binary, I guess. And that's probably mm-hmm. the most, re- well, it is the most recent the most recent development, I guess, in my identity. So I was part of, well, I um, applied to Trademark. I don't know. Do you have Trademarks in the US? I think you do. Oh, Um, yes. Okay, great. So in the UK, there was, I run this group called Queers & Co. And it was initially a zine and then a community and now a podcast. And I wanted to trademark the name. And I went through the process and it was rejected because the department considered queer to be an offensive term, uh, offensive to moral and moral, what's it, British moral values and standards, I think it was. Um, Oh, wow. Yeah. So that was interesting. And 
essentially what happened is I started a campaign and lots of other members of Queers & Co and the wider queer community were super supportive and helped me with signing a petition um, and that got to about 16,000 supporters um, and eventually uh, some media got involved and the reason I'm telling you this is because they started to write about me as women um, campaigns for change for example or campaigns for trademark laws to be changed and mm-hmm. <laughs> it was probably the first time that I realised how uncomfortable I felt with being referred to as a woman mm-hmm. and I was watching something earlier actually on online that was talking about how someone had already always thought that that was related to age that maybe they just didn't feel old enough to be considered a woman mm-hmm. um, and actually what I realised was I'm surrounded and you know most of my clients are trans and non-binary folks and I don't think that's a mistake and it really just became clear to me that actually I don't I don't identify as a woman. I don't wish to transition to being a cisgender man. In fact, I just don't identify with either of the, if you know, if we're thinking about the gender binary, I don't identify as being either of the genders. And so mm-hmm. that was for me, um, there are lots of sort of different gender non-conforming identities, but non-binary really sort of spoke to me um, and just felt like the best fit. I love that. I mean, yeah, okay. That's uh, that's actually really interesting how it que- the word queer was rejected as inappropriate or mm-hmm. whatever the term was. I think that's – I'm excited that the world is changing and I, I just want to – I love having conversations like this because the more that we – do the the more it's normalized and me personally I just don't want a group of people to live in fear because the other side is equally fearful and spewed by hate and I just mm-hmm. can't be on that side like I I think I would be identified as a cis female but at the same time I think there should be activism on both ends you know yeah. I think everybody yeah. has the right to have basic human rights and shouldn't be afraid, you know, to live. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And and that's why I really love just having just talking to, to people like you who to normalize it a little bit more so people don't have to be so hatefully afraid, you know? Mm-hmm. It's really yeah. it's really sad. There's this really interesting argument. I don't know if you have the same in the US, but uh, there was some talk around how sort of personal and social and sexual education happens in, in schools in the UK. And they were talking about how, you know, some groups think it's it's not OK that LGBTQ plus stuff is talked about in those settings. And I think there's this concern that by talking about it, people are going to somehow miraculously be turned gay or turned trans. Um, right. And I just don't I just don't understand that. Whilst I can understand the fear, I think at the same time, really just finding out about lots of different sort of identities and ways of living doesn't automatically make you into that. It just makes you receptive and sort of understanding. But also it gives people the opportunity, the opportunity maybe to explore that for themselves. I mean, we're mm. assigned a gender at birth and then we're never able to question that or you know how that feels for us and what that involves it's almost like you're born and you're handed this suitcase of like here are all these expectations like you're a girl so you're going to like these things or you're a boy so you're going to be good at these things um Mm -hmm. that kind of process of being able to question your gender and maybe if you have this kind of big suitcase of all the things that have been packed for you by someone else maybe you can like throw a few of them in the bin or like give some of them to the charity shop you don't have Mm -hmm. to take on all this other stuff that people have have given you and I think almost by having these conversations it's not that 
we're not turning anyone anything it's just allowing people the space to think about oh actually that's something I've never been able to explore and what might that look for me if I could choose and also being mindful that there is a great deal of privilege in being able to choose because not everyone grows up in a a place a family a society where they're able to express those things so yeah it's, it's a very complex complex subject but I definitely think talking about it is really important Right, exactly. And I don't think I, I don't think education ever inhibits anybody. It really just empowers them. Mm-hmm. And so I that's why I think I just think education is just so like being ignorant to the to the it exists whether you want it to or not. And yeah. so I think just being blind to it and being ignorant to um these issues doesn't really help you. It just feeds into the fire. And I think just, and I started to understand non-binary a little bit. Um, like I understand where people come from because I, I don't know, growing up, like I was a sporty kid. And so I was always called a tomboy. And I know that never sit well with me because I'm like, I, you know what I mean? Just having that label because I'm a girl and mm-hmm. I dress kind of sporty or, um, and I played in the mud or whatever. It's like now I'm a guy. Like, you know what I mean? So it's just like yeah. having these suitcases, like you said, was such a good example. And I really related to that because it's just like, no, I'm still a girl. I just like boy, th- quote, boy things. Mm-hmm. Like what, you know? And I, it's just, it's just interesting that we are, we are kind of, we have those suitcases. I, I just really like the way you phrase that because we are given these suitcases and we can decide whether we want to throw them away and identify with something else or normalize like different types of females or different types of guys and everything in between, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And who says there can only be two suitcases as well? Like who says that mm-hmm. you have to do these things or these things? It's just, it's also arbitrary. And I think I think that's what scares people, that once you take those things away, the same with diet culture, once you take away being limited by your body or you take away being assigned certain roles because of your gender, what is Mm. possible? And I mean, obviously, there are other factors. So I'm thinking about like ability and race and um, religion, lots of other things. But once once the choices are open, once people can actually choose for themselves and they're not kind of limited, the, the options are just endless. And that can feel really scary for people that if you sort of throw all the gender norms in the bin and can actually decide for yourself how you want to show up in the world, that can feel really empowering or it can feel really scary because then mm-hmm. we're, we're kind of, uh, I guess we like to attach ourselves to lots of different labels. And that's why I really love the label queer because it's the only label for me that has felt like it isn't a label because it's mm-hmm. so expansive and there's so many identities and sort of ways to be within that. But essentially it's like questioning the political norms, questioning um societal norms, gender roles, all kinds of things. And I just think that's a really exciting space to play within. Yeah, I like that. So you are a part of the Queer and Co and you hope to from my from what I understand, you hoped what you do is you give confidence to people to change the world. And so I wanted to know a little bit about that. So what exactly do you do and what kind of issues do people come to you with and how do you solve it? Yeah. And so I I guess first and foremost, I'm a transformational practitioner and the way like I use sort of coaching and psychological techniques and then also EFT, emotional freedom technique uh, and other things to essentially get people to a place where they 
often people have an idea of where they want to be, even if they don't know the specific the specific thing they might like to be doing, they might have an idea of the feelings they want to be experiencing. And so my work mainly focuses around people who know they want to make social change in some way. They could be from you know any kind of movement. It may be that the way they want to bring their children up is sort of different from the norm or it may be that they have a very specific goal in terms of setting up a charity or a project and I talk about self-empowerment for social change so it's all about the inner work that people can do around things like values like really getting in touch with what they believe having a vision what are they actually working towards and does that vision align with their values because that can be quite tricky if they're conflicting Uh, what else thinking about how we kind of mark the progress so I really think celebration for example is really important and lots Mm. of other lots of other things and I kind of draw those all together and with people we tend to work through uh, usually over six months a process of getting them to a place where they're removing their limiting beliefs and feeling empowered to do the thing that they've wanted to do but haven't felt like they could take up enough space to do or they haven't felt like they would have the confidence or maybe the skills to do and actually seeing people then achieve those things is incredible incredible um Mm. and so a lot of those people are part of queers and co which is just a a community that I set up and I also now run a course so people who maybe don't aren't able to do one-to-one work can come on the course it's a nine-week course called making waves and again it's just about that process of going having a vision knowing where you want to get to in terms of the change you want to be making no matter what what kind of strand of social justice and then taking the steps in order to do the inner work to get yourself um, there and doing the things. That's awesome. That is so awesome. Do you have from Queer and Co? Do you have people um, just in your local area, or is it a little bit of everywhere? Yeah, it's it's internationally and it's across lots of different movements as well. So we've got uh, people working in all kinds of kinds of different spheres. There are a lot of UK-based people, a couple who live sort of locally to me, but that they were my friends, so they joined and are also mm-hmm. making social change. But yeah, then people from from all over the place. And I think that's one of the things that feels really important about having a community and also the podcast is that different movements are able to learn from each other. Mm-hmm. One of the issues around being queer or part of a marginalised community is that very, very rarely or or not in the same way is our history preserved and mm-hmm. stories are not kind of passed down in the same way. Because if you're a queer person, in a straight family you know you're not kind of being you're not being told about different movements in queer rights and those kinds of things necessarily Mm -hmm. so this whole like relearning process that has to happen with every generation that is involved in a particular social justice movement and also each social justice movement can be quite streamlined so they're kind of only talking to people within within children's rights or disability Mm -hmm. rights or whatever it might be and actually bringing people together and encouraging them to share what works for them or what has been a challenge and then you know other people can give them feedback on that I think that's something that I'm really passionate about just bringing different movements together and seeing how we can work together because generally we're working for the same thing but Mm -hmm. if we're all kind of relearning it every time and um, not really sure of what worked before and you know what's working for other movements then it's it can be a lot trickier to get to the places that people want to get things to what would you say is the main goal of Queer and Co. and um, all of the social justice movements that you're um, participating in and creating? Uh, what would you say is like your goal? I guess it, mm. it could be your end goal or your goal with the whole movement. I think personally, for me, it feels like it feels like facilitating other people to make the changes that they want to see. That feels like my 
I guess like the backbone of my work and Mm -hmm. so whilst I do my own activism I actually feel like the majority of my activism comes from my work with other people kind of helping them to feel empowered to make their own changes because there's only so much that one person can do but if you're able to work with lots and lots of people then obviously they each go off and, and make changes So that's probably the main thing that I'm passionate about and and what I keep working towards. And then I guess in terms of in terms of Queers and Co, the aim would be to grow it really to a space where we can have much more of a sort of ongoing discussion and lots of resources that people can share. At the moment, Mm -hmm. it's very much like a grassroots kind of thing. Um, Mm -hmm. But yeah, and I don't know that I want it's not I want to make it more formal or anything. So I think there's something really exciting in having it very kind of informal and, and at a grassroots level but I would like to build it somewhat so there's more movements I mean at the moment it's quite well represented but there are some movements that I think we could we could bring in and there'd be more people you know working within those mm-hmm. movements who can share information as well right just to make it more accessible to others right yeah yeah okay and Jem thank you so much for being a guest um I really loved our conversation something that I do with all of my guests on the show is if the listeners didn't have a chance or an opportunity to listen to anything that we have said thus far, what would you like to leave them with? It could be words of inspiration or a mic drop moment. What would you like to share? Oh, that's such a good question. I guess it would be that whatever the thing is that you're thinking about doing or feel like you've always wanted to do but haven't had the confidence to do, do it and surround yourself with like-minded people who are going to help you to get there. So it doesn't necessarily mean that they have to be paid people or that they have to be people you already know, but think about what change you might like to see and actually go and start creating it. For me, the most powerful thing in terms of activism has been actually having conversations with people and that's become really clear in my local community. And I think that's one of the most powerful things you can do. So whilst it's great to sign petitions or to go on demonstrations or whatever, you know, whatever people might do, actually having conversations one-on-one with people and modeling how you live consent or how you how you support queer rights or how you support people of colour, whatever it might be, actually modelling that is so incredibly powerful. Yeah, I'm aware that's probably more than one thing, but hopefully that's helpful to your (laughs) listeners. (laughs) No, that's perfect. Thank you so much. Um, Where can the listeners find you at? I know you have your Queer & Co. Can you share information related to that and to your course as well? Sure. So if people go to gemkennedy.com, it's gem with a G, then they will find uh, all the information about the work I do, Making Waves, the course, and also Queers & Co, the podcast and the zine as well. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's been great. Thank you so much for tuning in. I appreciate each and every one of you. If you enjoyed the show, share it, uh, subscribe on iTunes, leave a review if you'd like. That just really helps to support the creation of these episodes. Thank you again for your continuous support. And as always, live life with love and love food with life. Bye, guys. See you next week.